Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with James Rogers. James is an author and journalist and a reader in international journalism at City University of London. James has worked as a foreign correspondent for the BBC in various locations, including in Moscow, Brussels and Gaza, and relevant to this podcast has reported on important events in Russia's modern history, including the breakdown of the Soviet Union, the wars in Chechnya, and Russia's war with Georgia in 2008. James's most recent book, Assignment Moscow, Reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin, which was published in 2020, but actually has a new edition coming out in 2023, following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine this year. This book covers foreign reporting on significant events in Russia from 1917 up until the present day, which is quite a feat. It's not only the story of foreign reporting on Russia and a story of the way in which journalists navigate the nuances of a restricted media environment, but it's also the story of how foreign reporting on Russia represents a key fault line regarding Russia's relationship with the West. So I look forward to discussing some of these issues on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me today, James. My pleasure to be here, Jessica. So this book really covers a very significant period of time, and it also takes quite an interesting angle in that it's looking at the way in which foreign correspondents have covered events in Russia's modern political history. What motivated you to write this book? I think it was um, the idea, one of my key arguments really in the book is that because so few people have been to Russia, you know, this country which has been influential so much in European and world history, particularly over the last century, but very few people have actually been there for all sorts of reasons. It's difficult, it's distant, depending upon the state of the political relationship, it's often, you know, quite hard to get a visa to go there. And so my core argument is that that being the case, that journalism and the reporting of Russia has disproportionately influenced people's ideas about the country. It's one of their main sources of information. If I think of uh, you know, my life being here in the UK, you know, if I think of my neighbours here in London, quite a lot of them have visited Spain at some point, quite a lot of them have been to France, some of them may have been to the United States. I think I might be the only person in my street who's ever been to Russia. And so this idea, the conversation I had with a friend many years ago, a friend from university, he said, I know loads of people have been to South America. He was talking about backpacking friends. He said, but you're the only person I know who's been to Siberia. And that got me thinking, you know, this really is, so the reporting really, really is important uh, for the way that people's perceptions are formed of the country. But coming up to more recent times as well, I was also interested to investigate how journalism and media have become such an important part in international relations, in diplomacy and conflict. Now, that's always been the case, of course, ever since there were mass media, ever since there were, you know, princes and kings in the Middle Ages putting out propaganda and their interpretations of what had happened. But we live in such a media-dominated age, I think it's been very interesting to see the resources that governments now put into making sure that their, their stories are told. And, of course, the correspondents who are working in that arena are very much part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just thinking about the way in which media does shape how we view 
narratives and stories about events. You yourself, as I mentioned, worked for a number of years as a foreign correspondent in Moscow, and you worked there both during the 1990s, which was obviously quite a turbulent time in Russia, and also was prior to Putin's regime. And then you worked there from 2006 to 2009, which covers the period of time of Russia's war with Georgia, but also was now under Putin's regime. So I'm interested how you would characterize and compare the media environment in Russia during the 1990s and then when you returned in the 2000s. Thanks. Yeah, it's a really good question because, I mean, I think as a, as a journalist and as a historian, I was really privileged to witness this moment in Russia's transformation in history, you know, from the late Soviet period up to, to the Putin era. They were really, really different. In the 1990s, I think it's probably true to say, and I think, you know, Russian colleagues will probably back me up on this. It was probably the freest time for, for freedom of expression in Russia's entire history. And it didn't just begin in the 1990s at the end of the Soviet period, I suppose it's true to say, because, of course, it was also part of the policy, the reform policy introduced by the last Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, when he had launched his program of perestroika and glasnost, you know, briefly restructuring and openness in the 1980s. But through the 1990s, I mean, if you want to sort of imagine what the idea of a free press is, it was utterly chaotic. But there was some excellent journalism being done there, too, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of people, as we know now, uh, a lot of people were getting rich very quickly and very rarely by entirely legitimate means. I mean, it was it was a, it was a crazy business environment, a lot of money coming into the country, a lot of those old Soviet industries, some of them you know, worth an awful lot of money in the market economy being privatized in often in murky circumstances. And Russia was finding its way in the world. There are all sorts of new phenomena were arriving you know, in terms of Western culture, Western TV programs. Mexican soap operas were hugely popular for some reason. You know, these were the kind of things that Soviet audiences just hadn't had access to. So there was an awful lot to write about. But there was also an understanding. There was also a principled ideological commitment on the part of the government and saying that we're not what has gone before. We are something different. Even if the members of the political elite had themselves grown up in the Soviet system, they were making a deliberate statement that things weren't like that anymore. And so the, the freedom of the press was not just a consequence of the rather chaotic political and economic environment. It was something to which the government really had a good degree of commitment. I mean, I remember talking to um, a Russian colleague who'd written something then, and he told me this story some years afterwards that President Yeltsin didn't like. And the editor of the newspaper he was working for got a phone call from the Kremlin. And there everyone's, you know, shaking their boots about what this is going to be. And the, the, the Kremlin, you know, official the, the, from the, the press office or whatever just said, look, he's a young journalist, you know, he shouldn't have said this, but we're, we're going to let it go. And, and that is absolutely unthinkable most times in Russian history and certainly, certainly unthinkable now. In the 2000s, though, you know, there was a lot, there was still a very good free media environment to a very large extent. You know, I mean, I think in terms of the Russian media, things had shifted in the following way. If in the 1990s, you know, it had been a lot of business people had got involved and bought up media assets and they started actually to use those media platforms in some ways to settle their business scores and their business battles. Already in the 2000s, the first decade of, of President Vladimir Putin's being in power, you did see an attempt to consolidate. Not everything was taken over by the state, but some things were taken over by the state, and those that weren't needed to be pretty careful to toe the line. Again, it's nothing like what it is today, but you could already see that process beginning. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious, how was it covering Russia's conflict with Georgia from 
within Moscow. Like I can imagine there might have been some restrictions around what you could or could not report at that time. Surprisingly few, actually. It was also a remarkable time because listeners may remember it was around this time that the Kremlin was deciding, and this was a time when Russia was becoming very wealthy on the back of rising oil prices. You know, the streets of Moscow weren't quite paved with gold, but my goodness, there was a a lot of conspicuous consumption going on there. And Russia was realising, though, particularly the Kremlin was realising, they were not getting particularly favourable international media coverage in many ways. What media organisations do they care about most? Well, it turns out they cared most about the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal because they re- they reasoned that that was what wealthy investors read and they wanted Russia to be well portrayed, particularly in those media outlets, but also in major international ones. So at the time, Russia had actually hired Western public relations advisors. So at the time of the war with Georgia, uh, we were faced with as correspondents there with this odd um, experience. And Georgia had also hired public relations advisors. Both companies they were using had offices in Brussels. I went subsequently for a program I made about the spin in the war to visit them in their offices. You know, they're a matter of a few hundred metres apart in a very nice part of Brussels. And yet they were both seeking to influence very strongly the way that this war was being reported, you know, in the heat of a, of a South Caucasus summer. So the curious thing was they began by offering a lot of conference calls. This is something that had started because it was only um, a couple of years after Russia had held the presidency of the G8. Russia, of course, was still a member of that organization then. So they were already got this fairly slick media operation, but it was clear they felt they were losing ground there. So it really struck me a couple of things. There was one day they'd arranged a conference call with the Russian foreign minister, then as now Sergei Lavrov. And that very soon turned into correspondence being invited to be given one-on-one interviews with Mr. Lavrov. I was one of those lucky enough to do it. And it was really sort of telling for me that they decided they really wanted to get their message out there. One thing, Jessica, I really remember from that as well, when I got back to my office and uh, the word got out that Western media were getting interviews with the foreign minister, we got a phone call from from Russia today, as RT was still called, saying, may we use your interview? Because then, you know, they were still trying to influence the international media rather than trying to get their message out just through their own outlets. And it was pretty clear to me that the Kremlin, while it was funding it uh, and assisting it and starting to promote RT, was absolutely, you know, didn't think it could deliver what it wanted in terms of international impact. And of course, that's changed very dramatically since. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. So as I mentioned, you have decided to release a new edition of the book. And in my mind, I tied that immediately to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine this year. And I believe that that does include interviews with journalists who'd actually left Moscow following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So why did you decide to release this new edition? And Can you share some insights coming out of those interviews? Sure. I mean, as somebody who'd been, you know, following Russia, you know, for 30 odd years, I I realised that this was, you know, truly catastrophic and defining event, you know, for all sorts of reasons, not least for the tens, hundreds of thousands of people who probably lost their lives in the war. I realised it was going to be an absolute turning point in, in modern European history in terms of, you know, Russia's relations with the West, something that will probably, you know, define them. I'm in my 50s now, I imagine for the rest of my life. So it seemed very important to sort of update it on that, but also because, you know, to build on some of the themes that I I outlined in the early edition, you know, particularly President Putin's use of history to justify his actions and his particular interpretation of history. And also because 
I think the way in which Russian journalists are not the focus of my book, but clearly things have been immeasurably worse for them than they have for international correspondents. But international correspondents have found themselves in a really, to share one overriding impression from my conversations with them, I think it is probably the suddenness and the sense of finality with which all this unfolded. You know, I think it's true to say there were very few people who thought that the war was going to break out on the scale that it did. I mean, I think if you ask most people who've been watching Russia carefully for years, you know, if you ask them in January or February what they thought that was going to happen, it would vary between, well, this troop buildup is about, you know, there had been a pre- one previous in, in the previous April, very similar. With hindsight, of course, this appears probably like a dress rehearsal for the mobilisation of those forces on the border. So there was that, and others said, well, you know, maybe he's going to try to annex Donbass, which in effect would have, you know, just established from a Russian point at least, de jure, what already existed, de facto. All of those assumptions were obviously proved wrong, and it seemed very important to catalogue this uh, real turning point in, in Russia's relations with the rest of the world. But also, you know, Jessica, of course, we've all been told, you know, in the last 20 years or so, Audiences for established TV bulletins are falling, newspaper circulations and revenues are falling. And this, in a way, I think the way that the Kremlin decided to deal with international correspondence and indeed with its own journalists was, in a way, a massive backhanded compliment to the importance that these people still have. Because, you know, talking about you know the audiences that they want to reach, they are pretty keen that what we in the West or most parts of the world would consider any kind of independent journalism is in effect becoming possible to practice in Russia today. And that, I think, for me, suggests that they realise the importance of it. But in terms of you know the new interviews that I've done, there's a lot of accounts of, you know, we didn't think this was going to happen. It's happened so suddenly, people comparing it to... One of my interviewees even says, you know, I could sort of imagine what it was, must have been like, you know, in the Stalin era when you, you, know, you heard footsteps in the corridor of your apartment block late at night, were they coming for you? And I think, you know, a lot of the people who've left, and they are pretty numerous, did so because they just didn't see any alternative. They just no longer felt safe there. And that that is going to have very serious consequences, I think, particularly for our understanding of the country when, you know, love it or loathe it. And let's face it, a lot of people loathe it nowadays, certainly as government. We need to understand it more than ever. Mm -hmm. And do you think, I mean, we have heard a lot about just how restrictive the media environment has become in Russia, in particular since February this year. Of course, it was already quite restricted. But do you think that what we're seeing now is another level from what we've seen in the past? Do you think that what we're seeing now is something more severe and of a different character to what we've seen in the past? Yeah, without question. I mean, certainly within living memory. I mean, for my book, the oldest correspondent, um, sadly, a gentleman since died since I interviewed him in 2019, Robert Elphick, who was a correspondent for Reuters in the 1950s in Moscow. Certainly, you know, within living memory, there's been absolutely nothing like this. Yes, of course, there's been run-ins. Yes, journalists have been uh, detained, even, uh, you know, on one occasion imprisoned or expelled or whatever. But there's been absolutely nothing like this, really, since the civil war in which the Soviets prevailed and, and came to power after the, the revolutionary year of the revolutions of 1917. And there are actually some interesting parallels in the sense that then, as now, quite a lot of media decided to brace themselves uh, in, in Riga, in Latvia, because it's very close, there's a big Russian language community there and so on. So no, in that sense, it is it is without precedent in modern times, you know, to have the sort of severity of restrictions. There are still some Western journalists working there, but very few. And I think, you know, their jobs are extremely difficult. 
and you'll have noticed from seeing the bylines and you know where material is actually reported from that a lot of the world's major news organizations have just decided it's too hazardous to have their people there so as i say this is certainly without precedent in living memory there is a historical precedent from about a century ago you know you would see in the early 1920s we'll be reporting from riga but we're really back there in terms of access and so it is as i say going to be very difficult i think for those who are still there doing a good job in very very difficult circumstances and those outside the country of course can draw on their expertise but good journalism ultimately thrives on eyewitness reporting and that sense of place you know it's one of the things that a good international correspondent communicates to her or his audience this is what it's like to be here you know you haven't had the chance to be here maybe you'll never get the chance to be here and so this is one of my big tasks is to communicate that sense of place to you and that is largely being taken away from correspondence at the moment Mm-hmm. So do you think that in some ways Putin or Putin's regime, also thinking back to the way in which things have changed since 2008-2009, has sort of given up, if you will, on what we might call the international community or the opinion of the international community and is really okay with limiting and closing down the type of information that comes out of Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think thus far anyway, it's a pretty fair assessment. I think they've probably taken the calculation that being seen to repress independent reporting is less of of an evil from their point of view than simply closing it down. I mean, I think one very interesting thing in terms of media and communication, if we think about the explosion of social media and digital media over the last 20 years or so, it's been one of those periods in history, like, you know, the advent of the printing press, the advent of mass market newspapers or whatever, when you know a lot of people believe this is going to spread human knowledge. It's going to mean it's much harder for tyrants to lie to us. That hasn't really been the case with social media. I think you'll find very few people who are such sort of social media enthusiasts nowadays as might have been at the dawn of this as a mass medium. The other thing is, I think Russia has, in effect, at least so far, succeeded uh, in using 20th century methods to place quite effective, from their point of view, restrictions on 21st century media. I think there are big questions that have been, bigger questions that have been raised about the effectiveness of this. Of course, YouTube is there, still working, there are still social media channels, so it's not as complete a blanket as it might once have been. But you have to ask yourself, you know, how many people are going to bother to try to circumvent these controls once you place there? And I think in terms of, you know, opinion, the people can be bothered to look beyond these, you know, the obstacles that are placed in their way. I probably, you know, if you're thinking about communications policy in the Kremlin, you're probably thinking that people are never going to take our view anyway. I think Russia would like, you know, its point of view to be heard more widely in the Western press. But I think at the moment, they're much more concerned with shoring up domestic political opinion and using the propaganda resources in that direction. Mm-hmm. And a question that doesn't directly relate to the news media environment. As someone who has followed the Russian domestic context for so many years, how do you evaluate the trajectory of this war in coming months or going into next year? Yeah, that is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, you know, I talked to a number of people here in London. I mean, one of the, the difficulties, of course, about the situation is now is that, you know, people like me have limited access to, to Russia. I mean, I think, you know, the continuing involvement of the United States uh, and other Western allies is key in terms of keeping Ukraine supplied with ammunition. I will say, though, I don't think there's any sign that, uh, you know, of Russia wavering. I think it, we have to remember the number of people in Russia, the size of the country. You know, examples that you normally find when a regime or administration is facing a revolutionary situation. I see almost none of those in Russia. You know, if we think about 
when the mobilization was announced, uh, and it's very hard to get an accurate figure on this, but most people would say that between quarter of a million and three quarters of a million Russian men of military age are allowed to leave the country. Presumably from the Kremlin's point of view, the ones we don't want to fight, we don't want them staying here to cause any trouble, so let them go. The security services, you know, this is a key moment in, in lots of revolutions when the police or the army go over to the side of the revolutionaries. Firstly, there are really no revolutionaries in Russia who are active at the moment. And secondly, there's every sign that security forces remain loyal to the Kremlin. You know, in terms of on the battlefield, I'm not, you know, a military expert, but I think, you know, in the same way that most people did expect Russia to prevail quite quickly, and that didn't turn out, a lot of people have been quite surprised by Ukraine's, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces resilience and indeed its ability to reverse some of Russia's gains. But a lot of that, as I say, is dependent on Western ammunition supply. So what I will say, though, Jessica, is, you know, even if the sort of we reach a stage where, you know, the active battle diminishes, maybe because of the winter or maybe because of fatigue, this is not something that's going to be over soon, because this really, in effect, is unfinished business from the end of the Soviet Union and the way that Moscow since then, since you know 1991, sees its relationship uh, with its neighbours and uh, former constituent republics of the Soviet Union. So in terms of you know, this ending, that there really is absolutely no end in sight in terms of a, you know, a, a workable solution. After they've lost so much, it's very hard to see any Ukrainian leader being able to say to his people, well, OK, look. We've done our best, but we have, you know, part of the country's gone. We're never going to get Crimea back and we're not going to get the Donbass back either. So for all those reasons, you know, while there may come a pause in the fighting, um, the longer term causes are very, very far from being addressed, I think. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see also whether Ukraine manages to make any significant military gains even over the winter and whether, if that's the case, what type of impact that might have. But I agree with you, we're not likely to see any kind of negotiated peace settlement anytime soon. Finally, what's the best way for listeners to find out more about you and your work and the upcoming new edition of your book, which I believe will be released in May next year? That's right. Well, thank you very much for asking about that. I do have a website, jamesrogersauthor.com. My name has uh, got a D in it, which it doesn't usually have. It's frequently misspelled, so I'll just stress that. There's also information on the website of the publisher, Bloomsbury. And yes, the new edition is coming out in May 2023. And I'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.